All right, we are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I am Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. That intro was a sign. That shit means something. Nope, I'm a nihilist, so it means nothing. <laughs> It's just a fucking pile of potatoes. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and you know what that means. Our fun guest, Zach Wilson, is joining us. That's all. That's my intro. That's all. Ah, that was good. I liked it. Uh, now do it a hundred more times faster each time. I just did it. It was so fast that your human ears couldn't even hear it. It's true. Did you guys hear it? Oh, man. <laughs> just <laughs> try to slow it. it down. I don't even know if the recording equipment could have picked it up. Guys, Zach's an alien. Uh, I don't know if you guys know that. The real twist was that the twist came less than two minutes in. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so uh, Take that, Shamamalon. <laughs> Zach, you brought this in to us pitch it for anyone who hasn't seen Close Encounters. All right. If you haven't seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this is one of Steven Spielberg's early movies that defined science fiction film. To put it lightly, it's just a brilliant piece of storytelling. It is interesting. It's a mystery. It's a thriller. But it treats, without doing any kind of like spoilers, it treats aliens in a way that is unique to Spielberg movies and it also just like has the has these themes of of hope that you don't get very often and that's that's sort of with uh, without getting into spoilers like that's what resonated with it with for me is that this is a movie about aliens and science fiction and just fantasy but with a hopeful turn that feels rare Okay. And what about it made you feel like it fit our theme? Goodbye, Halcyon Days. It's, well, uh, there's a lot of, like, growing and evolving in the storyline of of the main character, of Roy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot about, like, finding the thing in life that drives you and seeing what it, and, and, and seeing it through, seeing that journey through to the end. Whether regardless of what it's going to change in your life, finding the the next thing that might be better. Okay. I dig that. Uh, Lex, had you seen this movie before? I had. It's a movie that I revisit every several years. And every several years, I feel like I have a new experience with it. And this time was no different. Mm -hmm. I think I was struck in a way that I'd never been struck before by obviously there's the the really impressive sci-fi element and and Zach like you say it sort of helped define and solidify what sort of big science fiction would look like on screen going forward but this time for me what really really grabbed me was what a deeply personal document this is for Steven Spielberg um, and it's really difficult to talk about that in too much detail without talking about spoilers so we'll maybe get into it on the other side of the break but we talked about Catch Me If You Can a little while back on the show. And something that came up uh, in relation to that movie was Steven Spielberg's relationship with his own father and how uh, he gave an interview on 60 Minutes uh, a couple of years ago where he talked about it in great detail. And once you learn what his relationship with his father was, you start to see that all over his work. And you start to see, depending on what era of his work you're looking at, you can see his progression through, you know, working out his relationship with his dad and what that means to him. And also 
You got that in one hand. And then in the other hand, you've got uh, all of the UFO stuff, which was also something that was like a deep sort of abiding passion, uh, like a passionate interest of Spielberg's. Um, and Spielberg was kind of like acquaintances, you know, was uh, friendly with uh, J. Allen Hynek, who developed the Close Encounters classification system. And so you have a marriage of kind of like a, a big kind of hobby-like fascination and also something that is tied so deeply into the home and the family. And in a way, you could argue that that almost makes this the ultimate Steven Spielberg movie. And so I feel like it is no accident that this is widely regarded to be his masterpiece. Uh, but Tari, since you asked me, uh, had you seen this before? I had not. Uh, I had heard about it and I think I've seen stills from it. And I'm sure you've seen parodies of it over the years. Maybe. I think I would have to see them again to even like connect them to what the movie is. Like, I guess there are pieces of this movie that I was like, oh, I see where people pull different aspects from. Uh, and so it's one of those things where your, or I guess my understanding of media changes now that I've seen this and I understand how it's influenced things over the course of the many decades that followed. So it's been, it was a really interesting encounter for me in that, like, I didn't know, ha I didn't know what I was coming into and I didn't really know what to expect. And I found it to be a really interesting ride. I think that I agree that there's a, a reverence about this movie and, and a sense of wonder part of me kept expecting because of how films about aliens that have been influenced by this one had treated a lot of the different moments in close encounters i kept expecting something crazy and big and horrific to happen but it's just like no so this is a movie about just like people accomplishing the thing that they want to do and i was like wow that's nice <laughs> but there is still to what lex was saying there's still stuff in this movie that is deeply like disturbing or hurtful and not, but it doesn't come from the aliens. It doesn't come from like the scary thing that like from another world, it comes from our own selves and our, our families. Like that's like the human side is the most tragic part of this movie. And that's, I think what really gives it its heart is that it is like deeply human at the same time as being larger than life. Right. So, for anyone who uh, needs just an assortment of information on this movie, it was made in 1977. It's starring Richard Dreyfuss, who had to fight his way to get into the lead role because Steven was like, not for you. And so he kept shading all the people who were being considered. Every time he walked by Steven Spielberg's office, he'd be like, ooh, Al Pacino has no sense of humor. Ooh, Jack Nicholson is stupid. Until Steven Spielberg finally was like, fine, you can do it, Richard. But also it's starring Terry Garr, Melinda Dillon, Francois Truffaut. I think this movie in general, uh, as you were saying, Zach, has been parodied a million times, but I, I really, really, really feel like there's, there's such an iconicness about it. Yeah. It, I mean, you get like, the thing is, it's not that you're doing like a full on, like a wonder. It's not like baseball's parodied Star Wars. You're not getting that level of, of thing, but just tons of references like if you've ever heard like this means something, this is important and or seen somebody just playing with their mashed potatoes and carving things like it's just those little references. And of course, like the big sequence yeah. at the end, as you've seen just like different things make their version of it over the years. Right. And I do want to shout out, speaking of the end, spoilers, there is a spaceship in this. It's on all of the marketing material for this movie. <laughs> this is sorry a spoiler-free section. <laughs> but uh, I do want to shout out, because we can do it without really spoiling anything plot-related, the big uh, mothership that you see on, on the marketing material and in the movie was designed by Ralph McQuarrie, who did all of the really famous illustrations that are the basis for much of the design work in the Star Wars trilogy, but also uh, visual effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull, who does some, I mean, to, to call it spellbinding feels like it's selling it very, very short. But Spielberg was so enamored of the work he did with Kubrick on 2001 that he said, hey, come make my alien shit. And we are all the, the better off for it. 
This movie has so many weird like ties to Star Wars too. Like it came out the same year. That's a crazy thing. That one year gave us 1977 gave us Star Wars A New Hope and Close Encounters. Also on the ship, like because you're saying like they built it. You know, R2D2 is on the the mothership <laughs> yeah. in this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Atari, I don't know if you you caught that your first time watching it. No, I actually didn't catch it. I had to read uh, about it. It's one of my favorite, just like weird little details in that section, which has references to like five different other either like Spielberg things. Just they put R2D2 onto the model of the spaceship just because because they could. Right. Well, yeah. And also at a certain point, the Jaws theme is played for a second. The mothership is the mother of all reference machines. You also hear uh, when you wish upon a star during that sequence. Yes. The best Star Wars thing about this that's like not spoilery do you guys know about the percentage swap yes i don't so when this movie came out steven spielberg and george lucas who i like are famously like very good friends they were both making their space epics at the same time like george lucas was off making star wars while spielberg was making close encounters and both of them were convinced that the other was going to be more successful like george lucas like close encounters is going to be the biggest box office hit of all time and spielberg thought the same of star wars they had a bet and their bet was they swapped one percent ownership of each other's movies so steven spielberg got one percent of star wars a new hope and george lucas got one percent of close encounters of the third kind because those two were just like being like freaking competitive weirdos space bros space bros yeah Hell yeah. I also read that When You Wish Upon a Star was what Spielberg was using to to write the script because he wanted it to really have that feeling as well. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, there's Pinocchio references like right at the top of the movie. So I feel like we can't go too much further without uh, getting into spoilers. So I think it's time to start lowering that spoiler wall. Oh, there it is. It's it's going down. Oh, boy. Once we get back from the break, we are going to talk about the themes. We're going to talk about the characters. We're going to talk about the aesthetics. We're going to talk about everything you want to know about Close Encounters. All of the kinds. One through third. So make sure to stick around and we'll see you right after this break. And we are back. That spoiler wall is down. And so, you know, it's time for my favorite section. Buster recap. It's a, it's a tone gun. It it shoots tones. So let me do a quick recap for anyone who hasn't seen this movie in a while. <laughs> this movie starts off with some crazy plane work. These government officials are like, where did these planes come from? They were lost in the 40s. Waka, waka, waka. And then the French guy is like, oh, ha, I am intrigued. That's a... <laughs> That was a bad French accent uh, for all of you at home. And then we get a series of encounters with unidentified flying objects. Some planes are almost hit by one. Some local trucker, or I guess not truckers, but like uh, some locals in Indiana are just kind of hanging out. And they're like, oh, man, look at this. Look at this flying stuff. And so all the, the lights start going out and we we get our good friend, Roy. And he's called out because the electrical grid is down and he's got to go check in. He's just a Joe Blow electrical engineer guy. And so on his way to go check out stuff by the river, he comes encounter with the UFO and it burns the side of his face and he's like, oh man, things are crazy. And then someone on the radio is like, yo, more stuff is, is heading down the road. So he's like, yeah, I gotta find these, these, these aliens. And so he runs over in his truck and 
Then he sees them again. And uh, meanwhile, this lady Jillian, her baby is just like running wild. He's like, oh, man, I want to be friends with these aliens. They're hella cool. They messed up the refrigerator. They're making lights go all weird. All of our uh, electronics are starting to do stuff and my toys are playing. Hell yeah. And he runs off into a field and she's like, the fuck? Then she takes chase, and that's when Jillian and and Barry, who is the child, and Roy all meet, because Roy almost runs over Barry with his truck, and he's like, my bad, and she's like, I had to save him, and then boom, three alien UFOs fly over them, and then a little red dot is following them, which I assume is their little pet ufo like it's like a dog ufo where it's like <laughs> i just want to hang out with my, my big friends Ooh boy let's go for a walk uh and so now we get a series of events in which roy is becoming obsessed with this image he sees in his brain and he wants to know more about these ufos whereas his wife she's garbage and she keeps being like i don't i don't want to i don't, don't want to hear about ufos and i don't want to know about at all i want you to get some some work because i'm not gonna work oh boy look at all these expectations i'm putting upon you and he's like but i gotta know i had a close encounter and she's like you ain't gonna have a close encounter with this <laughs> vagina until you get a job <laughs> wow. and so then uh yeah that's what she says and then he <laughs> He keeps going down this rabbit hole. Meanwhile, the government is like, yo, we uh, we encountered these five notes in India, and it turns out that the Indian people got it from the skies. So we're going to send it back out into the skies. And so then they get a response. And this response is a series of numbers, and the numbers lead them to coordinates, and the coordinates lead them to dun 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 Devil's Tower. And so now they're like, "How do we clear everyone out? We're gonna lie to the masses, and we're gonna get, we're gonna encounter these these people, and we're gonna lead the revolution of alien encounters." But all the while, unbeknownst to them. Roy is becoming insane with his obsession with these UFOs and he can't stop seeing this image, but he can't put it all together. And his family's like, we're worried about you. And he's like, I'm doing fine. Look at my mashed potatoes. And then... He, he finally starts sculpting and he's like, I'm going crazy and everyone's going to see some cool stuff. And his wife's like, I'm leaving. I'm taking our kids. I hate you. You should have got a job. And now I'm going to, I'm going to go stay with my sister. You've always been a deadbeat. I hate you. And he's like, Oh, but I don't hate you, but I just need to, I need this thing. And she's like, I don't support you. And she leaves. And then he builds a sculpture of Devil's Tower, and he's like, I gotta go there! And also, Jillian, who had her child, because Barry, you know, she just can't keep him reined in, the aliens take Barry in the most harrowing scene of the whole movie, but now she's in a hotel room because she thinks the, the the aliens are going to come back to get her. And she sees Devil's Tower and is like, I too must go there. And they both try to get to Devil's Tower. They escape the MPs who are trying to uh, get everyone out of town. Carl Weathers is there for some reason. And then they make it all the way to Devil's Tower. They get caught. And then the government uh, is like interrogating them. And they finally meet the French guy who's like, oh, ho, ho, something has meaning. And they're like, is that French? And he's like, it is. But the guy who's telling this is bad at accents. And so uh, then they escape the MPs, climb the tower. And we have the most craziest coolest encounter scenes in cinematic history that it will ripple out in time uh in perpetuity while this is happening the government is sending out the notes and then the little baby ships respond with their notes and then the mothership comes and it's like "Ooh, baby let's talk with notes and then they do and then the mothership is like oh by the way here's everyone we've ever kidnapped and then the government is like well cool thanks here have 
our people. It's an exchange. And then all the aliens come out and they dance and have a little picnic. And they're like, oh my gosh, Roy. Hey, how you been? Come hang out with us. And they're like, oh, I guess uh, Jillian, here's your son back. Well, I don't know why we took him, but like we did. So there you go. And everyone has a, a wonderful day because they're their greatest aspirations had come to fruition. Roy got to see the fruits of his obsession. The government got to have a close encounter and lead the, the way in terms of alien communication. They got to send, uh, they got to do an exchange uh, of personnel. And now the world probably still will never know, but Roy does. And that's cool. Yeah. That's the movie. And then Roy goes to the stars. He is now star Roy. Yeah. Here's my question before we go forward for you two is which version of the movie did you watch? So this gets it gets so common. So like what is now referred to as the director's cut, the 1997 cut is the one that I always watch. Okay. I watched, I believe I watched the theatrical. I watched the one that is streaming on Amazon Prime. So I believe that's the theatrical version. And yes, I'm glad that you brought that up uh, this early in the discussion because I feel like which version of the movie you see will inform, at least to some extent, how sympathetic you find the character of Roy. Because I think um, some of the expanded material, if I recall correctly, maybe paints his obsession and sort of the resolution of said obsession in a, a slightly more selfish, not super chill light. Oh, interesting. Because I watched the theatrical, like the original version, uh, and then I did a little bit of research on the special edition, which came after the theatrical, and then the director's cut edition, which is Steven Spielberg's version that he took the best of both pieces because he didn't like the special edition. Oh, yeah, he hated special edition. Yeah, it wasn't it because I guess they show the inside of the ship where she was like, yeah, I don't want I don't want that. So he didn't think he was done with it when it came out in in 77. Like yeah. He still wanted more time, but the studio couldn't afford to give him more time. Right. So he he got it out without all the reshoots he wanted to do. And they, he asked them if he could put it out a director's cut the next year. And they said, the only way we'll do it is if you show the inside of the spaceship. because That's the only way we can like market it and like get people back in the theater. So we shot the sequence that takes place inside the spaceship. But it, the part of the whole movie is like, there's like a mystery, like, well, what's in the spaceship? And it's like, you're supposed to, you're not supposed to know. Right. That's sort of the magic of it. So he hated that he had to show it. And so he took it out when he recut it 20 years later. Yeah, I can totally see how uh, more obsessive Roy could effectively have you kind of rooting against him a bit in that you're like, oh, no, he's, he's fully gone. Whereas like, it seems because it's interspliced with a bunch of other stuff that's happening that like it's it is uh just kind of like slowly creeping in at first he like draws a thing and then eventually he gets to a point where his family's like we can't even eat in peace he starts sculpting with mashed potatoes <laughs> what is the main difference with the director's cut like you i assume you've seen both zach i have but honestly it's been so long since i've watched the theatrical yeah. cut that i'm trying to remember what is not in okay. there if i recall correctly i know some of the expanded material makes it a little bit more clear and and zach uh correct me if i'm wrong makes it a little bit more clear that roy was sort of halfway out the door already like roy had sort of burned out on his family was maybe if only subconsciously looking for an out to mm. begin with. You're saying in the director's cut, there's more of that. I believe so. And, and so the obsession with the UFOs, though it is legitimate, it is just as much in a way an excuse to get him away from his family. And of course, now you, you can barely hear about close encounters without people talking about, well, it's the ultimate deadbeat dad movie and stuff. Um, because at the end, he does get on a spaceship and go to the stars and completely abandon his family. It's interesting. I rewatched it and that's how I had talked. So I went through that journey and now I'm like back a little bit more away from the deadbeat dad mm -hmm. stuff than I was. I am as well. Uh, but yes, but there there is more of him like slipping into like perceived insanity yes it's like they don't 
talk about it, but there's a lot of like mental health stuff yes. going on in that conversation that I think just in the 70s is like you just you don't talk about that stuff. Right. But it like watching it in 2020, I'm like, oh, it's right there. All of the mental health analogies are right there. Yes, especially when you watch the theatrical, which sort of sheds some or did not include some of the stuff that makes it a little more clear that Roy was maybe looking for an out. It is so much easier, at least in my experience, and it sounds like maybe in yours as well, to actually feel for the guy because you could argue in the theatrical cut, yes, at the end, he does leave his family, but it's less that he bails on his family and more something real and profound and and shattering and life-changing happens to this guy and it ultimately takes him from them as opposed to he uses that as a as a way to make a choice to leave and again so talking about i mean the difference between the two right and and just sort of the concept of a uh, father leaving the family that brings us all the way back to Spielberg and his relationship with his own dad and like we talked about when we discussed catch me if you can i guess his mother had fallen in love with his dad's best friend when when Spielberg was a child and it split up their marriage and his dad left and he didn't know why and for the longest time he blamed his father and it was only many many years later that he came to understand the truth of how things actually went down and so it is also very interesting to see at different points in Spielberg's life how he chooses to depict fathers in his movies uh, across his entire body of work. But Close Encounters is fascinating in that in one movie, depending on when he went back to tinker with it, you get uh, arguably two different types of father in Roy, or at least a, a father guided by two different types of decision making. And I feel like that's really fascinating because again, I feel like you don't get, you, you don't get something that deeply truthful and personal in movies of this size all that often. And so that always fascinated me and never more so than this time when Zach, like you, I feel like I've never been further away from, oh, I just want to write this guy off as a, as a deadbeat dad, because it's clearly not that simple. Well, yeah, it's not that simple, but it is still in there. It gets complicated by the fact that like when you approach it, when you look at it as a guy who was dealing with like, conceivably a mental health issue because that's like what's what's happening there it, whatever the cause whether it's real or not when he has that 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 meltdown like the shower sequence mm -hmm. the way he talks about i don't understand what's happening to me if you've struggled with mental health at any point in your life that's a major thing that that people deal with is the is the sense of i don't understand why i feel this way and i need help when he's he's begging her to just hug him like he's like, that's all I need. I just I need you to hug me right now because I'm losing it. And that little he even says it's just a little thing. It'll help. And not that you not that you can't forgive her for her reaction because she doesn't understand it either. So she's trying to figure out how to handle a situation that especially people in the 70s were never taught to deal with. The mental health is still not talked about enough, but we've definitely come a long way since 1977. Right. right. But like, so they're both struggling with his, his meltdown. Roy has a complete mental breakdown. Yes. And they don't know how to react to it. And she takes his family from him and refuses to even discuss it in person. That's what with the mm -hmm. phone. I don't, and I don't remember which version, like what's in which version yeah, it's in it when they have the conversation on the phone and she refuses to even talk about it in person. Like that's sort of yeah. the it doesn't comp he still leaves. He still is not going to be there for his children, but his children <laughs> right. are taken from him against his wishes before he right. goes off and does this thing. So it's like I, I want to cut him a little more slack, but he still isn't going to be there for his kids <laughs> at the end of the right. day. At the end of the day, <laughs> he chose to chase his dream instead of trying to fix his relationship with his kids. Right. I think because I am a newcomer to this movie, um, I didn't have the the deadbeat dad perspective going in. The only time I was really like, no, Roy, don't, don't do that, was when he <laughs> kissed Jillian. And I was like, no! But other than that, I mean, yes, like, he... In, in a lot of this, at least from the perspective of the, the theatrical cut, is kind of a victim of circumstance. 
and like he can't control the 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 obsession that is building inside of him and and he doesn't know how to deal with it but there's also so something i had noticed throughout the movie is this there's like a weird religious subtext underlying piece that i can't even really like articulate a hundred percent but like there is this feeling like you're talking about it in under the scope of or framing of mental illness but it also if you are a religious person it could feel like this idea of like when you find the lord oh, like if you're convinced god is talking to you god gave me this mission right and other people won't understand and other people won't support you and you're alone in that the analogy or the allegory is that it's it's what's his name uh moses and the the burning bush or job who god was like yo i'm going to test you like those those big moments in the bible that we have and it's it's this regular guy who has this life changing thing happened to him and now he is set upon this journey to fulfill that aspect and he's welcomed into the into what is the mothership equivalent of heaven you know there's a really weird religious theming and it's it's all throughout like there are all these different weird framing where they're like "Ooh, look at people doing prayers Ooh, this guy's in a church so i'm, I'm wondering what aspect of that is intended or what is brought in by the the viewers as well did you guys have any like religious allegorical readings of this or is it just like is just me you know it's funny i'd never thought of it from a really religious point of view uh to me the aliens always represented like your dreams like your 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 goals the things you want to achieve in life but that's interesting. And it, it's funny because I, I often think about religion in terms of storytelling. But I that that's a new one. I'm thinking right. about it now because it's like, yeah, it all lines up. Like if the aliens were replaced by God in this story, it all tracks. You know, a lot of people like to speculate that if you look at sort of the the writings or the illustrations of ancient civilizations and then you juxtapose that with we don't necessarily know how civilizations that we just assume must not be as advanced as we are. You know, how did they accomplish X or Y? How did they build this or that? And so there's a lot of people who like to theorize that maybe they were helped by a quote unquote higher power. Uh, maybe it's gods, but also you would think if, if say um, ancient peoples were visited by extraterrestrials, like flying saucers, uh, wildly advanced technology that's indistinguishable from magic and stuff, they would in theory be, indistinguishable from from gods right so i do think there is precedent for that in in literature and also in written history even though obviously oh yeah prove that there's a story in the bible about a burning chariot that comes from the stars <laughs> yes. at one point the the aboriginal tribes in australia have the rainbow serpent a glowing rainbow snake <laughs> comes down from the sky takes the aboriginals onto its back, takes them up into the sky, teaches them all about like civilization and like and the hunting and all that and then brings them back to earth. That's the myth. That's the creation myth that right. the aboriginal and like there's obviously a lot more nuance and stuff to it than that, but like it sounds like an abduction story, a positive one, <laughs> but it sounds like aliens came down and were like we're going to teach you how to like evolve and we're going to help you like grow as a civilization and put you back on earth and also like we don't there's still scientific debate about how the aboriginals reached australia because the the like it's a pretty far journey and like that doesn't all necessarily line up so aliens uh meme <laughs> meme guy aliens um so zach uh i hear that you yourself have a special connection to Close Encounters. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not just like a movie I like to talk about. This is one. This is my, I would say, it, second favorite movie of all time, if not my first. I, 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 I might put Blazing Saddles above it, if I'm being honest. But it's right up there. Okay. Uh, but so I, I've watched it so many times, and I had always wanted to go to Devil's Tower. It was like this thing on my bucket list for so many years and like a little under two years ago, I, I didn't have anything happening over like the Christmas break. So I just was like, 
you know what? This year, I don't I don't even care that I can't find anybody who's going to make this absurd trip with me or like I don't have any reason to drive across the country and make it a stop. I'm just going to drive to Devil's Tower by myself. Screw it. And I got in the car and I went. How long did it take you to drive there? Uh, so it's about 1300 miles from Los Angeles. OK, I did the trip there in I got to Wyoming in two days. OK, which is like an absurd amount of driving when you're by yourself. It's it's not as 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 hard as it sounds. Right. Because you, you don't have to stop to let other people pee. You just hold it in uh, until you uh, can't take it anymore. That's yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. So I got the I got to Wyoming in two days. And then after the second night, I drove out to Devil's Tower and I just spent the entire day there. I like brought the movie loaded up on an iPad and I like watched it in like the foot of like just like I was like staring up at the at Devil's Tower watching the movie on a screen in my car because uh, this was also December, which was one of the poorer decisions that I made was to drive <laughs> to Wyoming in December in my Honda Fit which is from Los Angeles. So I don't have all weather tires. Right. Or like snow tires. And I don't know if you've been to Wyoming in December. Uh, The roads are icy. (laughs) So I take it you didn't climb up Devil's Tower to uh, do a little dance with some tiny aliens. Uh, I would have loved to. That is a vertical climb. It's not like a, oh, you can just walk up to the top. Like you have to... There's like very specific ways that you would have to climb. Like you basically the, all those ridges along the edge, they have things that you can put in, you put in between them so that you're not drilling into the the rock face, and not damaging anything. Yeah. Um, to climb right. up it. Uh, and I, th- not only was that not going on, this was during the last government shutdown. Uh, <laughs> so the whole area was abandoned. I actually wasn't 100 percent sure because the day I was supposed to go was like two days into the shutdown. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't. What is it? Is it going to be open when I get out there? And I'm literally like Google mapping the road and be like, there's no blocks. There's nothing that they could unless they like erected like big road signs with barbed wire like they have in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to stop you from just driving up there. And that's basically what it was. There was nobody there except for like me and a couple other tourists who like ran, who like did the same thing I was doing. Right. And Carl Weathers. Right. And, and, and also, Weathers. I had to look that up because I completely forgot. Carl Weathers, that scene is not in the director's cut. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So oh, I was okay. like, Carl Weathers? That sounds vaguely <laughs> familiar. And I had to be like, Oh, yeah. Carl Weathers is fucking in the theatrical cut of this movie. That's weird. That scene seems so pivotal. The the moment he's like, I'm going to shoot any looters. And you're like, oh, yeah, you get him, Carl. Uh, (laughs) Or or at least that's what a normal person would say. (laughs) So he wasn't there. Um, Okay. So you you couldn't climb. It was it was pretty much abandoned. But I walked around the whole base. And like there were other people there. Like, not to say that it was, like, completely abandoned, but, like, there were no park rangers, and, like, all the visitor centers were closed. Is there any kind of, like, Close Encounters gift shop or something? Are they really milking the the association? There's not There's not a Close Encounters gift shop, but there's, like, a there's plenty of, like, tourist gift shops nearby. Okay. It's a national park. It's the, it's also, Devil's Tower is also the first official national monument in the U.S., like, when they started making Ooh. the park system. And I forget which I think I want to say Teddy Roosevelt, but I'm not 100. percent Don't don't hold me that was like when they started the National Monument System as opposed to the National Park System. Uh, Devil's Tower was the first right. one, um, so it is like a protected federal property. Well, that sounds really cool. I think that like if if someone was inspired by you, do you have any quick tips that you could give them just uh, to make their trip as good as possible? Uh, rent something with four wheel drive. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, I drove through some snowstorms and some heavy wind on really icy highways that have no streetlights uh, through Wyoming. Again, in my Honda Fit, yeah. some of the scariest moments of my life. Because like you're like, I know that there's a drop there off the side of this mountain, but I can't see it because it's just black. Right. But it's gonna turn. Yeah. And like you could see the road, 
But you're like, if I hit an icy patch and kept going, that's it. These are all the things they're counting on this. Francois Truffaut is up there right now with a bunch of little squat, hairless gray dudes, <laughs> and they are counting on all of these factors deterring people so that they are never back. <laughs> but look, I did have the advantage of like it was there were so few people there because of like the happenstances of like the shutdown and everything that like I really could just like sit there in peace. And like I had my day like I literally split, I got there like probably 10 or 11 a.m. And I, I didn't leave until sundown. Nice. For me, this was like a since I was 15 wanting to do this trip. And I think I went when I was 30. It was a long time, long time. Coming. Yeah, it was a to go back to the theme. It was a religious experience. Yep. Something I uh, wanted to chat about because i had mentioned it earlier this movie having such a lasting legacy i wanted to kind of go through some of the the things that i've i noticed while i was watching it that are referenced in other things okay um so when the aliens first visit barry the wild boy all of his toys start moving and coming to life which is referenced in stranger things when dustin comes home Mm -hmm. And Eleven starts moving all his, his like, cars around. And you're like, oh, ho, 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 I get it. Um, and then I would say the mothership coming over the, the ridge of Devil's Tower. I feel like every alien movie since then has done some version of that. But specifically the one that came to mind for me was Independence Day. Uh, when you have the ships coming over the, I want to say it was the Empire State Building before it blows it up. Like, so stuff like that. Futurama does like, his Close Encounter parody is all over the place. One of my favorite was, uh, in a, it was in the newer seasons, but they had an episode where they're like fighting a space whale. Mm-hmm. And they eventually get the space whale comes back to the Planet Express Building and like crash lands. And then the, it opens its mouth and like the crew comes out. And then like everyone that like there's a bunch of characters that have been set up as missing and they all start coming out. It's like the scene. It's just a whale's mouth. (laughs) And then like the fourth doctor wanders out of the mouth for no reason. Just like random. Like what the fuck is happening? (laughs) But it was perfect. It was perfect. I have a vague memory of one of the straight to video Casper sequels having a scene that opens at a, uh, a baseball game. And I guess the three, his three uncle ghosts, the ones that are always causing trouble, if I recall correctly, they, for whatever reason, descend upon the baseball yes. game as the spaceships. And I believe they do the the run of five notes. And I don't know why that choice was made, but but clearly it resonated with me. I don't even remember which Casper sequel it was from, but I was like, ah, oh, fucking Casper sequel. They got me. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yeah. I believe The Simpsons does the mashed potatoes bit. I'm sure, yeah. Oh, the mashed potatoes. I think actually before I even saw Close Encounters for the first time, I saw the mashed potatoes bit parodied in UHF, the Weird Al Yankovic movie. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know which of those movies I saw first. Both of them were, I think, released before I was born. (laughs) Uh, Well, Close Encounters definitely was. UHF was close. So who knows which one I knew first. I'm trying to remember. There's so many like random things that like make reference to like the tones. So speaking of the tones, this movie has a really good soundtrack or score, as cinema people will say. Snob. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a John Williams special. So uh, he also did uh, he also did Jaws as well, right? Yes. If there's a movie score that you like, it it's, it's probably John Williams. Um, <laughs> and I really like the way that they integrate the five tone sequence throughout the the film in different pieces of score, especially once we get to the end and we have the big triumphant piece. Where, like, you know, the, the aliens are coming out and you get the big giant alien and then you got the, the people coming in and everyone's like, all of my dreams have come true. And you get the, the five tone piece as a part of 
that score element. And I think it's super well integrated and also the different ways that they manage to like have it manifest is, is really well done. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful score. Again, think about the year 1977 just for John Williams. John <laughs> Williams one year puts out Star Wars and Close Encounter. The, what? What world is was that was that year? Well, and you you talk about like John Williams, but also then we were talking earlier about you know uh, Spielberg and Lucas being buddies and having these movies come out at the same time, and then casting you know um, Harrison Ford as their leading man in both Star Wars and then in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark shortly thereafter. This was a relatively tight group, and they were also you know they're buddies with people like Brian De Palma with Martin Scorsese. Like it's wild when you with with Francis Coppola, it's wild how you take a step back and you see how this relatively small group of artists and collaborators and friends right around this time, like 75 to 81, pretty much changed movies completely. And not just not just the kinds of things you would see on screen, but the way the entire industry approached almost every facet of producing and selling movies. But it was really just a few guys. But yes, uh, to, to your point, hooray for John Towner Williams. His middle name is Towner. Did you know that? I didn't until just now. No. I had no idea. I don't like it. Why? <laughs> Towner's a dumb name. <laughs> Tari refuses. All right. So we are getting around that time. So do you guys have any final thoughts about Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Any lingering pieces that we didn't cover? Any last minute pleas for people to try to consume this thing? Well, I'm curious your guys' thoughts, like, because that that final sequence, like, we talked a, we talked a little bit about, it, but we didn't talk about the the aliens themselves, right? That come out of there, <laughs> these little guys who are like almost ET, which is another interesting little reference, because it's like, is this supposed to be like an <laughs> ET sequel? Did did ET get like left right. behind by these guys? They're the same shape. Uh, ET's just like yeah. a little more like crushed down. So we see three sizes of. Mm these aliens we've got a super lanky dude who comes out first and then he just disappears then you have like all the little like the tiniest ones and then like a middle a middle guy who the middle guy is like our he's the exchange student (laughs) as my is my interpretation of that right like you don't say it but it's pretty heavily implied like that like they took roy and they're leaving this dude yeah but what about the other two? Like, why was there Super Lanky Man? So the Super Lanky Man is probably the muscle, right? Like, they sent him out first just in case the the people that they're there to commune with are not on the up and up. Like, maybe they're actually there to, like, deceive them or harm them in some way. So we send Scary Dude out. Now, maybe Scary Dude is actually, like, he's got reach. Like, he's got those long limbs. So maybe he can impale you from a distance, protect all the little guys. But maybe it's just they <laughs> count on, maybe it's like a, the the frilled lizards, right? Like, they count on the appearance of this thing being such that nobody will dare uh, come at them wrong. And then once they see, all right, it seems like things are generally copacetic. That guy can go sit down. He can have uh, a Capri Sun or something like that. And they can send the the little dudes out and everybody can party. And then the little guys are, are they kind of be, they, they look like and behave like children. Like, cause the amount of like how excited they are and they're all like, Ooh, look at this guy. But yeah. Are I mean, they? they're they're played by by I think it's like six year old girls. That's yeah, I believe they're played by children. But I'm saying in in universe are right. like because that feels weird to me. Like, why would you send you're having like your first encounter with a brand new civilization? And let's be honest, it's it's humans like don't you don't trust humans. Right. Uh, uh, <laughs> in the first meeting. Uh, and I feel like they've like most of the people they've abducted were soldiers, so they know this. But like, yeah. so I don't think that those are actually children. No, I think they're just like a because this. Uh, other than the fact that they are rampant abductors, they seem like a pretty chill group. And so, like, they they were only really excited when they saw and then like giddy when they saw Roy, who was personally invited. So they were like, yeah, we chose you. Hell yeah. But everyone else, they were just like, we're going to stand on a line. Oh, boy. Cool. Let's do this. Let's get this over with. Um, It's like if you go to a party and uh, no one 
is there that you know and you're like, all right, I guess I'll just stand in the corner, drink some punch. And then the person that you know shows up and you're like, fuck yeah, let's hang out with this bitch. Uh, it's like somebody it's that like you've that. only like really interacted with like maybe four times, but you're like, thank God you are my best friend now. That's exactly what that happened. Yeah, maybe. I, I get. I guess like I assume that they're all, uh, I also found it, I find it interesting that these aliens, also like E.T., just don't wear clothes. Uh, which is not a, not a thing that these people do. <laughs> yeah, I I assume that like Lanky Man is like the leader, like realistically, like okay. he's got to be like their right. their captain coming out to be like, "Hello, humans!" And then he goes back into the ship. Right, has a Capri Sun, sends the kids out. <laughs> yeah, but like he's like it's like his his job to just like greet them, and then the the exchange continues and begins and. Right. And whatever. I uh don't like that we saw aliens. I would have preferred if if Oh interesting. It was just the the you know, the light exchange and then the human exchange. I don't know if I was a big fan of seeing these aliens come out and like jump around and 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 like I don't know, make hand signals. I, w- I don't know if I was a big fan of that. It personally. does at the at the very end of the story, it does sort of make everything extremely literal. Whereas, like, we've been talking about this whole conversation about how there's a lot of a potential allegory for mental illness, for example, or even potentially addiction, right? But at the end of the story, we do see all of these aliens. And it's like, no, 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 but, but like, it's literally aliens. So in that sense, it doesn't, like, it doesn't un- undermine or unravel anything. But yes, it does make everything very, very literal. See, to me, I think that's why this movie worked for me, especially when I was younger. I think if it had just been maybe you didn't maybe you could have done it without the physical aliens there and it was just the ship. Yeah. But I feel like seeing them like, yeah, not seeing inside the spaceship like you do in the special edition, like you don't need to go that far. Like that much can be a mystery, like what lays beyond the stars. I don't need to see where he goes. I don't need to see the planet or the city of the aliens that they go to. Yeah. But I, I. I think for people in the 70s and and they, for me as a 15 year old, well, first time I saw this, I think like having that much of like he did it, like he achieved what he was trying to do was part of what like why this movie resonated as hopeful to me. OK, uh, like that's like because it's a movie about so many. It's like so many things like you know, where you're dealing with with struggle and belief and, and all this stuff. But at the end of it, you were left with this profound feeling of hope because this character, as much as no one believed him, he had to like fight with him, like himself, his family, the, like just his, uh, all of the people around him. Like it cost him everything to chase this, but he got there eventually. And I don't think, I think if he doesn't, if we don't see proof, it doesn't hit that way. And even Spielberg has talked about like him leaving is like not necessarily something he still believes was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, Spielberg has said he would not make this movie the same way now right. uh, as like as a father himself. He would have changed it. <laughs> He's like he uh, would have had the alien uh, fly over his wife's uh, <laughs> sister's house uh, and be like, give me my kids. We're going to space. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just fucking like blows it up Independence Day style. <laughs> no, he he drives by uh, his his wife's sister's place and just like he leans out the side of the ice cream cone like big middle finger like bye Ronnie and he's just out. <laughs> I was right. <laughs> uh, no, but like I like it make I see why he he. Spielberg says that, right? Yeah. Um, but as and like the family stuff, like yeah, maybe you change it to achieve that same hopefulness without the like baggage of uh, deadbeat dad. Uh, but that was what really resonated for me was the the it, like it still hits that way even with like some more complicated layers that I get as an adult. Like it still is like push through, push through the struggles because there's hope on the other side. And yeah, you keep going. Yeah, I dig that. I dig that. Uh, Lex, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap? Yeah, okay. I guess uh, if I'm going to tie a bow on my take on this thing, um, I guess I want to bring it back full circle and say, you know, okay, so no one but Steven Spielberg could have made this movie, right? Like I was talking about earlier, 
this movie is this perfect alchemy. It's the perfect melding of his fascinations, his interests, his passions, and something that is deeply personal and true to him. And I guess what I want to sort of encourage people to take away from this, whether or not Close Encounters is your jam, although, I mean, in my opinion, pretty great movie, whether or not it's your jam, I want people to, to sort of take that away from it, right? Because everybody has the ability to do that. Now, we don't all necessarily have the ability to pull together that kind of budget and hire Richard Dreyfuss and John Williams and stuff. But <laughs> look at look at what we're doing right now, right? Like, look at this show. Like, if you've been with us uh, for the, the sort of duration of our run on Missing Out, one, thank you. That's very flattering. But two, you know, right? Like, we, we're not, it's not that we uh, are, are sort of anointed by God. It's not that we're necessarily that special or, or wealthy or have that many resources. It's just we have passions. We have interests. We have things that really sort of tickle our brain. And we also have a lot that we personally can bring to it. And thus is born a show, right? And I think I want people to sort of try and internalize that because you have a story, you have things that have happened to you, and you probably, probably have at least one interest. And if you meld the two together, right, you can create something that is, they say that the more specific something is, the more universal it is, right? So in doing that, in sort of finding your own version of that alchemy, you can create something that is meaningful. Like Steven Spielberg told a personal story on a large scale and and almost single-handedly, not entirely, but almost single-handedly changed the face of science fiction. So find your close encounters. Find what's personal for you that you want to share. Find what you're excited about and share that excitement with others, right? Because that's that's what you've got. That's currency. You've got what's personal to you. Nobody else has that. That's yours. So Find that alchemy and share that with other people. That's what we've been doing. And like, I won't speak for Tari, but I found it to be incredibly rewarding and incredibly fulfilling. So find it. Find your fucking spaceship and ride to the stars. Leave your kids behind. Get out there and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but that would be that would be it. It's like find find your close encounters because you may well have it in you to change your world and the world as well. Well said. All right. Well, if someone wants to help you. Zach, chase your dream and find your spaceship. <laughs> Where can they find you? Uh, you guys can find me uh, on uh, Twitter and Instagram at that Zach Wilson. That's Zach with a C-H. I have to say it because this is an audio platform. Of course. And uh, you know, most people don't know how to spell it properly. <laughs> uh, that's Zach Wilson. Uh, and then I also have a uh, have a podcast that uh, we're still going. We're, we're, we're nearing up on 100 episodes of Ships in the Night, which both Tari and, uh, and Lex have guested on in the past. We take couples for, with characters from completely different universes, and then we fanfic them together into taut, sexy relationships. Hell yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. I don't think we've done a Close Encounters ship, though. I mean, you should. Mm. Dude, that, that little gray alien and Francois Truffaut. <laughs> <laughs> That like oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about like the fact that we they're like Francois Truffaut is an actor in this movie. <laughs> yes, right. His only right, his only English language role, and I think the only time he acted in a movie that he didn't direct. Bizarre. Yes, and but I totally ship him in the little alien. That little <laughs> alien was totally like signing to him like I really liked your Fahrenheit four fifty one. I don't care what anyone says, and like. <laughs> Dude's eyes light up and shit, and he's like, oh my god, this is it, and he fucking like leaves his kids and goes to the stars. Yeah. We assume that they were trying to teach the humans how to like just communicate like people, but we don't know. They could have been saying really <laughs> filthy stuff to them, and the humans are just like, yeah, thumbs up. Let's do it. And they're like, wow, they're really into that? I get, uh, who knows? This is a new species. Let's roll with it, aliens. Very advanced. They know things that we do not. Get Lanky Man out there. Like, he's been waiting for somebody to say yes to this. <laughs> uh, well, Lex, if someone wants to give you the sexy hand signs, where can they find you? <laughs> I am on Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. And I also do a podcast with my partner, Marianne Ramish, that we call Friends with Benefits, where we take a look at the massive pop culture juggernaut that is the television series Friends that I believe ran for uh, 30 or 40 decades. Uh, and uh, we examine it from a fan perspective and a critical perspective. Marianne is a giant fan of this show, and I am to date very much not. But thankfully, I'm having a better time talking about it than watching it. You can find that wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, it's uh, Friends with Benefits. Go check that out. Tari J, where 
can people find you if they want to ship you with a little gray alien? Well, if you want me and a little gray alien to do the thing, all you got to do is go to Twitter and type in at Tari J. That's T-A-U-R-I-J-A-Y. But most importantly, if you're trying to get down with this podcast, you can follow us at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Once again, we'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Zach Wilson. Thanks, guys, for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. This has been a really fun episode. For everyone at home, this is our last full episode. Womp, womp, sad, sad, do, 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 do. But we will have a a shorter wrap-up episode just to kind of put a cap on all of this missing out goodness. So keep an eye on our twitter and we'll let you know what the deal is with that and uh until then this has been the retrospective that is introspective and now you have a new perspective 